You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, ladies and gentlemen, it's the newly elected president of the Mixed Martial Arts Journalist Association, your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing this week? I think you mean, how are you doing this week, Mr. President, sir? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going there. Uh, You're lucky that I haven't started the impeachment process yet, as far as I'm concerned. Please start the impeachment process. Because I got What do we have to do to get that going? I got a list of grievances and scandals as long as my arm. Okay. I don't know what we're waiting for. Although I will I will blast you in a series of tweets as a slime ball. <laughs> we did uh talk on the live stream. When was that? Friday? Is that, that when Friday. we did that? Did that last Friday about uh your recent election as the president of the MMAJA. At that time I gave you the opportunity to make an opening statement. You didn't really take it. So I'm going to give you another one here on the Co-Main Event podcast proper. Ben, as the newly elected MMAJA president, do you have any public words? Well, I would just like to point out that I won the presidency with 75% of the vote, which that's a mandate, my friend. That's what you call that. That's a big time mandate. I think that we can all agree that anybody who receives 75% of the vote, uh, has peaked and had, should probably therefore resign immediately and live a life of luxury and leisure. I thought we agreed that, Thank it, you. that anyone Good who, night. <laughs> I thought we agreed that anybody that got 75% of the vote pretty much had the job for life. Yeah. Well, okay. And as the guy who has the job for life, I hereby name Chad Dundas as my successor. Wait, is that, are you planning to check out? Are you, is there something you're not telling us? I'm you, going is there to a terminal fake illness? my own death to, oh. to avoid serving this office. That would be so like you to fake your own death to get out of uh, some requirements. I probably shouldn't have said I was going to fake my own death. It's going to be a lot harder now. That's like the one thing you got to know about faking your own death. Yeah, don't, don't say that's what you're going to do. Ben, Dundasso shirts are back. No way. And they're up for sale over there on Cotton Bureau right now. CottonBureau.com slash products slash Dundasso will get you there where to buy the shirts. Two items of positive news. Number one, we've already sold enough shirts that this run is going to go to press. So if you want a Dundasso shirt, you can, you can go scoop one up without having to worry that maybe we were going to fall short of the threshold and your purchase would go for not. You just get your money back. Do you have to act now because then they're going to be gone forever? I haven't got there yet, man. Let me, let me get my, my announcements out of the way. Okay. Uh, we are such good clients for Cotton Bureau that this time around they're giving out free shirts. What? We gave out a free shirt when we got to 12 shirts sold. Right now, I just looked, we're sitting at 21 shirts sold as of this recording. If we get to 25, Ben, I'm giving out another free shirt. Gonna do a little bit more Dundasso trivia over at the, uh, the Twitter account at Chad Dundas. Hashtag Dundasso trivia. I can tell you're excited. Yeah. The way you're looking at me, mm-hmm. I can see the excitement in your eyes. Yeah. And it's as everyone knows, it. scoop up your Dundasso t-shirts now because I think 13 days from now is when the, uh, the run ends. And at that point, well, they'll be gone forever. God, I want it to be true this time. I really do. See, one of these times it's going to be jokes on you motherfuckers because it will be the last time. So you're, so you're saying the greatest day of my life? One of these days will be the greatest day of my life? Second to the day that you got elected president of the <laughs> MMAJA. Ben, how's the Patreon doing? Do you want to guess? Do you want to do a thing where you, you guess and you're woefully wrong? Well, we were up over 700 last we checked, right? That's right. I'm going to say like 30 people probably canceled their subscription, so we're back down to 695. You would be wrong. How are we doing? 732 patrons. For the CME podcast. Unbelievable. That means 732 people who get to enjoy special added extra content, such as our Brunch of Champions live streaming event. Went went off like gangbusters. That we did on Friday morning, uh, which if you're a patron, you can go back and watch that anytime you want. Anytime you want to just, you know, maybe you're making dinner. You want to just feel like we're in the room. 
You you click that, and it's just like we're we're sitting around having a conversation with you anytime you want. Everybody wants to feel like we're in the room while they're making dinner. That's right. Nothing creepy about that. Uh, also, those 732 people can enjoy written content, such as the ongoing serialized noir fiction, The Old Man and the Sea. That's letter C. Be dropping the second part of that this week? The second part of that drops this week. Thank you, Chad. Oh, man. I can't wait. Patreon.com slash co-main event. Get in on the action. We got music again this week from our friend The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear, you can check him out on Twitter at The Fifth Element, Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you know by now, that's the word the with an A, The Fifth Element. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one. You know, even though Justin Gaethje lost to Dustin Poirier on Saturday night, why did we keep expecting him to plug a cigar into the corner of his mouth and say, I love it when a plan comes together? And in round number two, is it time to bust out Johnny Hendrick's voice for the natural born killer? Oh, man, Carlos Condit. You know what I'm saying? Oh, and in man. round number three, Frankie Edgar fights this weekend in a rematch against Cub Swanson at fight night 128. That's right. You heard me correctly. Frankie Edgar fights this weekend against Cub Swanson. At Fight Night 128. All that, plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Alex Cool Guy Hands. Okay. Is it kind of like the Cool Hand Luke, Cool Hand Luke Sanders bought on the prelims? There was a little discussion about whether you can go ahead and do that, whether you can just be Cool Hand Luke. Who is the other one? Uh... Cassius Clay Pollard or whatever it was. Yes, that's, that's, I believe that's exactly correct. You Cassius love that one. Clay Pollard. I know. I love you the can, look I'm on your face. I'm closing my eyes right now. Whenever I bring it up. It's like I can't even believe it. Cassius Clay Pollard. <laughs> cool hand Luke Sanders. And now we have added to that list Alex Cool Guy Hands, which he, that one's just kind of meta. He writes, is it time for Alex Oliveira to rebrand himself as the evil cowboy? He's always the villain in his fights. Missing Wade and then doing a crotch chop versus Will Brooks. Faking the injury versus Tim Means, beating Carlos Condit. And we already have one named Cowboy, so now he's stuck with Cowboy Oliveira every time he fights. What's he waiting for? Ben, is it fair? Is it fair to try to rebrand? I mean, I'm not going to say I don't love this idea because I kind of do because there's a lot of possibility here. But is it fair to brand Alex the Cowboy Oliveira as the evil Cowboy? I like how one of the lists of the evil things he has done is beating Carlos Condit. I mean... Like, just winning a fight. Right, yeah. It's appropriate, though, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess... I, I mean, I understand the sentiment. I can't argue with that. Although, it does make me wonder, does that mean Cowboy Cerrone is good cowboy? Which... Uh, can I mean, he, he be like... People like him. Can he be chaotic neutral cowboy? Yeah, okay. That feels right. Because I don't even think Cowboy Cerrone would describe himself as good cowboy. No, no, he probably wouldn't. Like, does he even own a white version of that hat? You always see him in the black one. I don't know that the that uh, the good cowboy would be sending out his address to the internet haters, right? right? Inviting them to stop on by a place where he lives that is called the Bad Motherfucker Ranch. Only in MMA does that make you good cowboy. Now, good see, cowboy would be offering for you to stop by for a cup of tea. And if you have car trouble, maybe he, you you come by Good Cowboy's place, uh, he'll take a look at the alternator. Uh, Cowboy Oliveira now, 5-1-1 one, one in his last seven fights. Obviously, this win over Carlos Condit Saturday at UFC on Fox 29 is a big one. I found it somewhat endearing. I mean, not necessarily that he beat Carlos Condit. I think that if you're a hardcore MMA fan and you've been around a while, probably deep in your brain's heart, you were hoping that Carlos Condit goes out there and gets back on track after some tough times. We'll talk about that a little bit more in round number two this week. But, you know, Alex Oliveira gets the big win. He looked uh, uh, at times pretty good, at times like maybe he was about to succumb to Carlos Condit's offense. Uh, but then he gets on the mic and he's like, hey, I took this fight on short notice. I, I did it for my family, my brothers, my cousins, maybe uh, implying that uh, Cowboy Oliveira has, has some people that he takes care of, some people on the payroll, you might say. Uh, I found that to be endearing. I don't know that I would chalk that up to an evil cowboy. Okay, but he does need to be the something cowboy. He can't just be... We got room in our house, hearts for one cowboy. Okay. Do we not? Yeah, I mean, that's that's probably accurate. Right now, we've been referring to him as other cowboy, which... Not super special. I mean, evil cowboy is definitely an improvement on being, like, lesser cowboy. Or cowboy number two. Yeah, the lesser of two cowboys. I also, though... 
something about it makes it make think that it would just break his damn heart to find out that somebody referred to him as evil cowboy. He seems like that kind of guy, right? Like he would be that he would be sad. Yeah, yeah. If you found out that, that we referred to him as the evil cowboy, other thing that about Alex Oliveira is when you see him in the cage after the fight and he's got that cowboy hat on, I believe it. I believe that Alex Oliveira might go ride a horse in his in yeah. his off time. That if Cal, if I believe that if Alex Oliveira wanted to, he could catch you by the feet with a lasso and trip you up. Okay, well that I would pay to see. Uh, so wait, is he if? Donald Cerrone is going to be chaotic, neutral cowboy. <laughs> is he like lawful good cowboy? Yeah, maybe he can be the good cowboy. We just flipped it on you, Alex. Cool guy hands. Yeah. Okay. How, how you like that? I'm I'm into this idea. I think they could both really succeed as both good and evil cowboy. This question from Andrew Millington. He writes: Adam Weezerek needs to be a capital G guy, a goddamn omoplata at motherfucking heavyweight. This is the kind of thing I was hoping we would get to see in the UFC when John Olav Einemo got signed way back in 2011. Discuss this rather welcome anomaly, if you would. Now, one of the interesting things about this fight, Ben, on the uh, preliminary portion of the UFC on Fox 25 or Fox 29 uh, card is that Aran Bular, am I saying that right? Did I get close? The opponent? Bular. Bular. He came in with uh, no small amount of hype. Yeah, this fight because he came in six and zero. Oh, uh, he's a thirty-one-year-old guy, so still you know fairly young for heavyweight. Likes he wears the turban down there to the cage. Uh, I saw some uh, some news stories about him. It seemed like maybe Iran uh, Buler was going to be kind of a, a a guy in this weight class, and then he loses in his UFC debut or his second UFC fight. Excuse me, he loses this fight. So letting a little bit of air out of that. Hype train, I guess you would say. Well, and to lose by Omoplata. And then I was going to say, at the same time, as Andrew Millington points out, an Omoplata in a heavyweight fight, that's just something you don't see every day, especially in 2018. Although, if you were going to tell me, you know, we haven't seen an Omoplata in the UFC since 2014. You don't even see people attempt them, really, anymore. Sometimes, you know, some people use it as a way to get off the bottom. But if you were going to tell me that we would see an Omoplata a successful omoplata in the UFC where the person who gets omoplata never even really begins a defense. I think my guess would have been heavyweight. Yeah, I guess that's that's a solid point. Now, you as the jiu-jitsu correspondent of the co-main event podcast, how does it feel when a guy loses a fight via omoplata? Is an omoplata the sort of move that like when someone when someone taps out to it, do you roll your eyes a little bit? Yes, especially at this level of MMA. You shouldn't get beat by an omoplata. I mean, you just should be able to to see that coming far enough in advance that you're going to be able to shut it down. There may be some people who, if that's like their thing, that's their specialty. But most people at this level of MMA, if they even attempt something like that, it's as a setup for something else. Or it's just like to isolate your arm to stop you from punching them in the face for a little while. But I I wondered actually after watching this one, was it that no one in training has thrown up an omoplata on this guy? Just because why bother? Like, what are you preparing him for? Like, nobody's going to actually try to omoplata you out there in the UFC. So maybe it's just a thing that people don't even drill. Uh, especially, you know, a wrestler, he thinks, I got to take this guy down, maintain top control, not even really trying too hard to pass the guard. Like, are, is he just so focused on doing that that uh, he's worried about the more, I guess, conventional responses to that? That maybe it was never even a thought. That here comes like an omoplata. We have to worry about the omoplata out there. And so because he just never even did any of the things that you might expect a guy to do once you see that coming. Yeah, it was surprising, right, from a a guy who not only trains at American Kickboxing Academy, which is uh, obviously a high-level MMA camp, and also is a super decorated wrestler, like a, a I think a, a gold medalist at the, at the Commonwealth Games and a bronze medalist at the Pan Am Games in wrestling. So... Uh, not that those guys are like automatically come equipped with uh, solid submission defense, but at the same time, you'd think a guy who knows his way around the ground uh, wouldn't get fooled by an omoplata. Well, one thing, though, I mean, not that he even really started to do any sort of defense, but in that position, one thing that can work in the other guy's favor is if he's up against the fence, one of the things that you, you think about doing if it, when the omoplata gets a little bit more advanced there is stepping over. If you're up against the fence, there's really nowhere that you can step to. But he did seem like like the look on his face right after he tapped to the omoplata was just like, God damn it, of all the things. Uh, I think that maybe that's 
That's something he's going to be needled about a little bit in the wrestling room. Just for my own edification, what is the worst submission to get caught in? Just in terms of like you show up at the dojo next weekend, they might well uh, cut your jujitsu card in half. Toe hold. Toe hold? You mean like a uh, like when like a like a pro wrestling move, like like Kurt Angle's ankle lock kind of thing? Kind of, or the thing like the most basic white belt jujitsu thing that every once in a while you see in an MMA fight, where like you take somebody's back. And you make the mistake of crossing your feet when you go to put your hooks in. Right. And then they do the thing where they pass their, you know, one leg over and then kind of triangle it uh, and arch back to put the pressure on your feet. If you have to tap to that as a, like a, a UFC level fighter, you're going to hear about it for the rest of your damn life. Good to know. Next question this week comes to us from Darcy Dunn, who writes, guys, what should we make of Israel Adesanya at this point? Dude, obviously got a lot of hype leading up to his UFC career. But Saturday's fight against Martin Vittori wasn't exactly all that, if you ask me. Discourse, please. Yeah, okay. It seems to me like maybe suffering a little bit from the elevated expectations we have from Israel Adesanya. A little bit of hype fatigue, perhaps? Well, and uh, just not only do people expect him to win, but they expect him to really go out there and show out and do something crazy against the guy. And, you know, he hit uh, Marvin Vittori with some pretty good shots there that Marvin Vittori took. I also think, though, that uh, Vittori did better in that fight than people were giving him credit for, or better in that fight than people expected. You know, he he was standing there, and you could tell, feeling like he had a chance to win that decision. I, I mean, I'm not saying he should have, but it looked on paper like this was a fight where Israel Adesanya is going to go out there and break dance on a guy's face, and it didn't go down like yeah. that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, and Vittori made it super interesting with that takedown down the stretch there. I think that's the third round, right, when he was uh, spent most of the round on yeah. top of Israel Adesanya. And you could kind of tell... Uh, from the UFC broadcast, just sort of how they were talking about Israel Adesanya. Because for much of that first round, you got Dominic Cruz and uh, Daniel Cormier in the booth basically assuring us that Israel Adesanya, Adesanya was just about to be awesome, right? Most of the first round is like, oh, okay, well, what he's doing here, he's seeing Martin Vittori's offense, he's getting his timing down, and then he's going to explode, and right. it's going to be awesome. Like when, like we used to tell ourselves about Anderson Silva when he got into that habit of clowning around on motherfuckers, and it would be like, okay, but any minute now, it's going to be something rad. And then once you get into the third round, you got Dominic Cruz, uh, and I believe he even said, this is just honesty. On the broadcast, he said, "Thank you. Uh, you know, we're starting Thank to see bad. some holes in the game of Israel Adesanya that he's being taken down. Martin Vittori is sort of holding him down here. If you can do that to this guy, uh, you can you can nullify his offense and maybe ground out or grind out a, a decision. And, and clearly, like Martin Vittori came closer than the odds would have said that he had any right to come, losing a split decision here to Israel Adesanya. But I do think you're right, Ben. Like it's a situation where." Uh, you know, we heard how awesome this guy was. We saw the highlight tapes. His first performance in the UFC was pretty awesome. We expected him to maybe like even better that coming out for his second performance. And maybe that's not fair to, uh, put those expectations on a guy who, after all, is a professional athlete. He's going to go out there in a, in a sport that is very unforgiving in mixed martial arts. And like, uh, maybe it's a situation where just getting the win ought to be enough for us. Uh, but that's not what the expectations tell us to, to look for. Yeah, well, and I also think that some aspects of his style, like he defensively is really tough to track down, to even find. And I think you saw that with uh, what we saw like in the first, second round, Marvin Vittori keep trying to go after him, keep keep marching forward, and just can't seem to touch him very much. And like that's really impressive, but it also seems like he is maybe a little too patient when it comes to uh, firing off his own offense. And in a three-round fight like that, that's tough to do. But I also think the way to think of him in MMA is as a work in progress and not as like this is this has to be the finished product. One time I read an article about Hunter S. Thompson okay. that was written somewhat late in his life. And part of the article was sort of like that Hunter S. Thompson essentially hated being Hunter S. Thompson uh, because he had established this reputation for himself as a huge partier. And a guy that would like drink all the whiskey and take all the drugs. And so by the time he gets to be in his 60s, 
he doesn't necessarily want to do that anymore. And yet, every time like he goes out on the road, any anytime he shows up anywhere, like on a a book tour or whatever, everyone expects, oh, oh here comes Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Let me just I brought a big a ass bag pills. of cocaine. Yeah. He's obviously gonna do all of it. And Hunter S. Thompson was actually like, oh man, I just like want to do my reading and go back to the hotel and get some rest, right? And sometimes I wonder if you've got a guy like Israel Adesanya where the expectations are he's gonna spin around and do something crazy. I wonder if eventually it gets to the point where they're sort of like, well, can I just win? Couldn't I just win the fight? Wouldn't that be enough? And then do a bunch of cocaine. And then do a bunch of cocaine, eventually go back to the hotel and get some sleep. Yeah. Why not? Last question this week comes to us from Randy Poffo. Oh, okay. The Macho Man. Nice. Randy Poffo. He writes, Edson Barbosa versus Kay Lee, who you got? And will the UFC just shrug and hand one of these guys a lightweight belt when this is over? Everybody else has one, right? Oh, wow. You're not going to do that in the Macho Man voice? No. Oh, yeah. How's that? That's all you got? Is that all you have? I mean, I didn't prepare anything. You couldn't just read read the question in your Macho Man voice. Do you want to read the question in your Macho Man voice? I think your Macho Man voice is better. That was not bad. So Edson Barbosa versus Kevin Lee is actually the main event. Not going to do it, huh? No, I'm not going to do it. Of uh, What is it? Fight Night 128? Fight Night 128 coming up this week uh, from Atlantic City, New Jersey, out there on Boardwalk Hall. We're going to pay a lot of attention to Frankie Edgar versus Cub Swanson in the third round of this show. Uh, but want to give a little love to Edson Barbosa versus Kevin Lee. That is the main event. Lightweight contender fight. Uh you know, just just recently, Ben, Kevin Lee's out there fighting in a, uh, one of a million interim lightweight title fights. Does, doesn't win it. We ended up putting the interim lightweight title on, on Tony Ferguson. I believe eventually he took the belt outside, and it turned out it was made of sugar, and it dissolved in the rain. That'll happen. Is that what happened to yeah. Tony Ferguson's that, interim that lightweight title? Uh, but here we go. Edson Barboza versus Kevin Lee. What's the future for the winner here? Like, uh, you know, Dustin Poirier got a pretty big win at lightweight this this weekend, which we'll talk about in round number one. But are things wide open? Or as we talked about last week, are we just in a fucking endless holding pattern uh, trying to wait to, to figure out what Conor McGregor is going to do? Ding. Fucking endless holding pattern. That's what we're in. Especially, this is weird because here you have a main event between two guys who are both coming off a loss. And granted, they were both, like, losses against, like, the top of the division, Edson Barboza to, to Khabib Nurmagomedov, now the, we're told, the one true champion of the lightweight division. Uh, Kevin Lee to Tony Ferguson, the, you know, sugar, uh, belt champion. But still, it is a little bit strange. Even when you talk about it, you have to say, this is actually the main event. I can hear your voice just dripping with enthusiasm. Well, you think, fight. I mean, you just think if you didn't look at the card that, that Cub Swanson versus Frankie Edgar would be the main event. Especially in New Jersey. It's got Frankie Edgar in it after all. Right. And Cub Swanson. A couple of, a couple of guys. A couple of known guys on the scene. And that this one, like, you're going to have a tough time selling this to me as our traditional understanding of a contender fight. What it is is maybe like a contender eliminator because the loser is going to have lost two straight against the division's upper echelon. The winner isn't exactly in a line for anything clearly or immediately. The winner's going to have to fight somebody else after this. It's not like you're going to be jumping up on the mic and be like, that's right, give me that title shot right now. Nobody's going to believe that. You know, it's a stretch even. We'll talk about it, I'm sure, a little bit. But even for Dustin Poirier to beat Justin Gaethje and then be like, all right, title shot now. And it's just kind of like, yeah, that doesn't seem to be the way this works anymore, especially not in this division right now. It just seems unlikely. Is it unfair for me to say that despite the fact that he is obviously a high-level lightweight and previous to that loss to Habib Nurmagomedov, he had won three fights in a row. But is Edson Barbosa at this point just sort of a measuring stick for guys who are uh, elite-level lightweights? And if yes, does that make this fight uh, more important for Kevin Lee? Because Kevin Lee was a guy, uh, I think he was like, what was he, like 13 or 14 and 1 or something like that prior to the... Tony Ferguson fight, and he ended up losing that one, obviously. Still a guy at just 25 years old that holds on to a lot of promise as a prospect or a guy that we expect big things from at 155 pounds. Does Kevin Lee absolutely, positively, 100% need to go out there uh, and show out or at least beat Edson Barbosa to retain much of that shine that he has as a, as this elite guy? And is that just Edson Barbosa's role at this point? Yes. And I think think about how many fights Edson Barboza would have to win in a row before people really started talking about him as okay we're we're seriously hyped to see Edson Barboza fight for a title and the UFC is hyped to have him as a contender. 
Yeah, a lot. Seven I mean, or eight, Ed's, at least. Edson Bar, you know, not quite to this extent, but last week we talked about Justin Gaethje just sort of like uh, being this main event level fighter because he goes out there and puts on these amazing fun fights. Like Edson Barboza is similar in that he's sort of a known commodity, right? You throw him out there, you know he's going to do some spinning shit. And like, maybe that'll be fun. And if he doesn't do that, eh, he probably doesn't win. Is that, yeah. Am I just being unfair to Edson Barbosa? Like, obviously, the dude is uh, one of the best fighters in the world, so it feels a little bit mean to just sort of be like, yeah, measuring stick, gatekeeper. Yeah. Well, and when he beats you, he has some killer highlights. Like he had that uh, you know, uh, flying knee knockout against uh, Benil Dariush where it looked like he killed him That's and true. timed it absolutely perfectly. Uh, you know, the, he has uh, still that uh, really uh, like kind of just uh, – what's the word where – the highlight where it looks like the UFC saw it and was like, okay, just plug that one into every reel for the next 20 years. Uh, the one against Terry Adam. Yeah. Uh, which happened in 2012, by the way. Right. But so, it was a long just time like, ago. As soon as they saw it, it was like, this was the, this is the platonic form of a UFC highlight reel knockout. Uh, so he can do that. And yet it does seem like whenever he is up against somebody who is kind of that next level in the division, like you look at his losses and it's like Donald Cerrone, Michael Johnson, Tony Ferguson, Khabib Nurmagomedov. And it's like, all right, well, there's like kind of a list of the people who uh, do matter or have mattered yeah. uh, recently in the lightweight division. And he doesn't beat those guys. So, I mean, the, the win against uh, Gilbert Melendez probably or Anthony Pettis, you know, he beat both those guys. And it's like those are his highest profile wins, but it also made us feel – like we had learned more about them and where they were at in their, their career than about where Edson Barboza was headed. Well, now that you just read off the list of guys who beat Edson Barboza, that makes me feel like this is even bigger of a litmus test for Kevin Lee. Yeah, you got to be one of those guys. Right. Like if you want into the West Side Cool Guy Club, man, you got to beat Edson Barboza. Is that the only way in? I think other than maybe you also have to like throw a rock through the back window of a police car. Can I like uh, steal the mascot of the East Side? Uh... Social club or whatever. Yeah, but that's uh, that's dangerous because I believe they're the East Side Piranhas. Oh, so yeah, no one, no one's gonna do that. BT Dubs Kevin Lee was sixteen and two headed into that fight against Tony Ferguson. So I don't want to shortchange the guy a couple of wins. Also, think he's gonna show up with another huge staff infection on his chest this time. Boy, I hope not. Uh, yeah. I'm hoping maybe just a pair of leather overalls and some flip up sunglasses. <laughs> okay. Maybe now, with a pair of lumberjack socks pulled up to his knees. Right. I don't know. Now you're reminding me what I like about a Kevin Lee fight week. There you go. Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you all know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us while you're there. Hey, sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. Uh, the newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. Sometimes we give stuff away through there. Scoop up a hat for yourself, maybe. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, Dustin Poirier versus Justin Gaethje in the main event of UFC on Fox this past weekend was exactly what we thought it was going to be in the best possible way, because these guys went out there and did indeed have a crazy slobber knocker that ultimately ended with Dustin Poirier beating Justin Gaethje uh, by fourth round TKO. Now, as you said, after the fight, Dustin Poirier gets on the mic and pleads with Dana White and Sean Shelby that he wants to get a shot at Habib Nurmagomedov. Now, it's time. I it's time, he, he said, said, while he was making the belt, the, the international symbol for I want the championship belt around my waist. Everybody knows that symbol. And, and then, Aliens will come to Earth and they'll see that and be like, oh, he wants, the, he wants the belt. And then I believe he said, let's fucking go. Obviously, that didn't make it on the, uh, on the Fox broadcast. Speaking of which, Israel Adesanya, I wanted to say this while we were talking about him. I believe he said, I shit on your grave. That sounds like what he said, yeah. Toward the end of his. It's tough to tell. 
Is no one telling these guys that they're on Fox? That they're on the national television here? Well, I thought when they showed one of the clips before of him, like, talking about how he is the new dog and he came in there and pissed all over the cage. And they they even bleeped that out. And I was like, man, you can't even say that on Fox? And then you're going to take it even further? And also, like, I felt like the uh, the metaphor got a little mixed when you start shitting on people's graves. Indeed. Yeah. Are you still a dog in that scenario? Because a dog can kind of be forgiven for shitting yeah. on people's grave. He doesn't understand. Hard to know. Hard to know. In any case, for most of this fight, Ben, Dustin Poirier looked like he was throwing the harder shots. He had the, you know, the crisper combinations. I don't know if it necessarily looked like he was in control for most of it. He did get stung at least once and stumbled by a Justin uh, Gaethje punch. But at the same time, Justin Gaethje was throwing those baseball bat leg kicks that looked like uh, they might just do Dustin Poirier in. At any point, you know, they showed him in his corner between rounds and Dustin Poirier, by the way, appears to be the ideal fighter to corner because he's out there like asking questions, telling people that he's listening to him, calling him sir, just being completely reasonable. And yet it kind of looked like he had just been in a car crash because they're icing his leg. He's got blood trickling out of his eye. Uh, So ultimately, like. Even though it may not get him the title shot that he wants, I feel like this was a big testament win for Dustin Poirier. Maybe just to steal the hearts and minds of mixed martial arts fans. Yeah, well, and I thought he answered some questions here because one of my concerns, if you'd ask me about Dustin Poirier, would be if he can stand up to the hard shots, especially at lightweight against some of the harder hitters at lightweight. Can he he weather that damage and keep coming back? And he proved he could because there was a moment where it looked like you know, Dustin Poirier is winning early on, and Justin Gaethje's plan clearly is just to keep chipping away and to keep pressuring him and to just kind of break his will that way. And it looked in the mo- for a moment there early on in the third round like, here it is. Here comes the swing. Like, he hit Dustin Poirier with a shot where you saw Poirier not only back up but then kind of look off to the side as if, like, just scanning the room for exits just in case. And you thought, oh, here it comes. And Gaethje could tell, you know, he follows him back up to the fence uh, and is kind of patiently looking for his spots there. And then Poirier circles off and gets back to work. And being able to go through something like that and also have his leg just chopped away and then still being able to come back and finish the fight in the very next round, I think that did answer a lot of questions. And it, was, it wasn't like he just kind of got lucky with one punch and... Uh, hurt Justin Gaethje. It was a that was a good like tactical counter to a guy who is clearly committed to the to the leg kick. And he said afterwards that you know talking to Tiago Alves and Tiago told him, "Hey, wait until he gets really comfortable throwing that leg kick and then sit down on something hard uh, to come back at him when he throws it." And that's exactly what he did, and that's what set up the finish. Dustin Poirier has been fighting in the UFC since 2011. And this was his 20th fight in the octagon. To give you an idea, Ben, when he started fighting in the UFC way back at UFC 125, his first opponent was Josh Grisby. Okay. Back when we all expected Josh, Josh, Josh Grisby, excuse me, to, to be something. Yeah, I really to be thought, like a big time prospect. I, I, I think Josh Grisby now, and I just, I'm doing the thing with the, the belt thing with my hand. Perhaps I am alone in this, but I feel like it has taken me a while to come around to kind of how awesome Dustin Poirier is. Because, like, the dude is 10-2-1 in his last 13 fights, and that dates back all the way to August of 2013, which, uh, bouncing back and forth between featherweight and lightweight is nothing to sneeze at. That's a hell of a record. But, like, I watched his fight against Justin Gaethje, and it kind of strikes me all at once. Like, we've, we've known Dustin Poirier is a good action fighter. Uh, he's fun to watch. He's out there, like I said, being completely reasonable about everything, including getting poked in his eye twice, uh... And then we get to the end of the fight, and he has like kind of a uh, an endearing post fight interview where he wants the belt, does the international sign for I want the belt around my waist. And I feel like I watched it, and I kind of came away with this newfound appreciation for Dustin Poirier being kind of awesome. Yeah, no, I, you know, I spent some time with him when I went out uh, to American Top Team in Florida, and uh, I had the same reaction that he was like a, a smart, thoughtful guy. Uh, and I, the thing I wonder about now is. I don't know if you saw the the clip afterwards where he's talking about how, you know, he's not out here trying to get a rematch with any of these dudes like Eddie Alvarez or anybody. He's not, uh, you know, trying to start these beefs or, or, you know, begging for people's attention. What he wants is he wants to win the belt, make a bunch of money, and be able to say to his wife, you know, I did it. Like talking about like his wife driving him to weigh-ins because he didn't have a car back when he was fighting in 2006. And it would just be him and his wife in a motel room uh, and he'd go and fight the next day. 
And it was really touching, you know. You could tell like he even got a little like choked up talking about it. And and I wrote a column about this today about how you contrast what Dustin Poirier is trying to do and his kind of stated goals and where he's trying to go and how he's trying to get there with what Justin Gaethje has said that he's trying to do. And it's clear that like they both like Dustin Poirier has a little bit more of a traditional idea of here's what's going to lead to success in MMA. I'm going to win all the fights until I get the champion. Then I'm going to be him. Then I'm going to be the champion and I'm going to make a bunch of money this way and uh, live happily ever after. And Justin Gaethje's approach is like completely different. Just like not worried about uh, rankings or even winning. I'm just going to go out there and make sure that my fights are the most exciting, that everybody wants to see me fight. And in this way, I will also end up with a bunch of money, live happily ever after, even if I have a much shorter career. It struck me as like, I can see how they both arrived at this conclusion, that here's how it's, how I should do it. And yet I can't tell you which one of them has the better idea, for at least for succeeding in this division at this moment. Yeah. And I think Justin Gaethje came out after this fight and said he's got five left. Right? Yeah. Which, when he had said before, they had six. So at least he's consistent. What makes you feel like he's the candle that burns twice twice as bright, just in terms of pure entertainment. If he shows up to one of these afterwards and is like, well, I told you guys, now I've only got eight left. That's when you need to be concerned that something right. got knocked loose. Because right now, at least he's he's counting well. Right. That's probably what he was saying to Herb Dean when they stopped this fight. Uh, does Dustin Poirier, is his Twitter avatar picture still him in his bathrobe with a cup of coffee and his black belt around his waist? Yep. Because that is in the running, I believe, for greatest Twitter avatar pictures on the entire website. At least under MMA division. Yeah. You know what I like about the pace with which Justin Gaethje fights, Ben? Is that it appears to be terrible even for Justin Gaethje. Yeah. He's out there in your face. Throwing, inviting you to punch him. He, he invited Dustin Poirier in to, to tangle with him moments before getting stopped. Yeah. Via TKO. He was stanky legging it and still doing the like bring it thing. Yeah. Uh, Justin Gaethje is out there in your face at every moment fighting at a very high pace. He's clearly got the cardio to do it. But at the same time, he's sucking wind halfway through the first round. Like he's this, the thing that he does is not easy even for Justin Gaethje. Like he is clearly. Uh, throwing himself into the fire every single time out there. Uh, and this fight in particular was just blood and guts from both guys all the way through. And even knowing what we know about all of the sort of uh, physical threats posed by this sport and, and how, you know, we've all educated ourselves a bit more as time goes by on brain injury and stuff like that. Boy, it was still a hell of a thing to watch. I got to be honest. Well, yeah, that's the thing is I like when he talks about like, hey, I, my goal is to make sure that I'm the most exciting fighter around and that you'll remember me that way and that you'll never want to miss one of my fights. It's working. I don't want to miss a Justin Gaethje fight. I don't care who he fights. But one of the things we talked about beforehand was how long that can stretch on and you can be a capital G guy if you're not winning at least some of the time. Because now he has two losses in a row and, the, you know, both of those finishes look pretty similar the, the Eddie Alvarez one and the, the Dustin Poirier one, they both end with him like basically um, kind of face down on the mat grabbing for somebody's leg. And then you think like, okay, I, that does not really harm my enthusiasm too much. You put him up against somebody else who will dance that dance and the next one, sure, I'll, I'm going to watch that. How about if he loses that one? Yeah, I was going to say once you get to three or four in a row, I think that's where maybe uh, you start to experience diminishing returns. Uh, both in Justin Gaethje's marketing and maybe like what we expect from him. But you're right. Like after this one, uh, he lost the fight, but I have no qualms about, you know, b b installing him in another UFC main event and hashtag would watch. Absolutely. Uh, can we talk about the leg kicks just for a second? Because I feel like one of the things about guys like Dustin Poirier, who obviously is tough as nails, is that they're out there taking these leg kicks, which if I got hit with one of them, I'd probably be in bed for a week. Yeah, I'm going home. Kick me one time in the leg and I'd be like, all right, that's I'm good. I'm out of here. Uh, part of the reason that these leg kicks are so effective, isn't it, is that like the attitude of Dustin Poirier is like that it's not going to matter. That like he'll just take them. Isn't that his, his approach? And I mean, Gaethje was being kind of crafty, like firing off the inside leg kick as the counter to uh, the left hand pretty much every time Dustin Poirier threw it, except uh, the one that ultimately ended the fight. Uh, but at the same time, like Dustin Poirier is not even he's not even trying to check these things, is he? Well, he talked afterwards about how he felt like he needed to make some adjustments there that if not checking them, then at least shifting his weight so that making them not quite as bad. I think what he said was, uh, I took a couple of them, more than a couple. 
And yeah, like I guess that's the attitude that you have to have if you're going to go in there, take a bunch of you're going to five round fight with Justin Gaethje, where you're going to have to take some leg kicks and then have an answer for them. Uh, but you know, it, ultimately, like his uh, well, you know, with help from Tiago Alves, but that awareness of like, look, this guy who has clearly committed to this and this is what he does, uh, he does offer you that opening when he is really getting like into auto, like leg kick autopilot mode where he's just kind of throwing it automatically at the end of sequences. Uh, like you do have that opportunity to fire back on him. And I mean, I think that tells you something about the mindset of Dustin Poirier as like, I'm getting my leg kicked to shreds, which is an opportunity. Not, not necessarily a, a bad thing for me. I was trying to find the tweet. I can't find it now, but it kind of tells you everything that you need to know about Dustin Poirier, who obviously uh, posted a picture of his leg. Like, as you do when you win a fight that you, where you got your leg all beat up, you go on the Twitter machine and you post a, a picture of the bruising. I saw a tweet today that said, I believe he was on the uh, Fortnite. He said, Dustin Poirier says the bruising on his leg has gotten much worse. He can still walk on it, but he can't bend it. To which I was just like, yeah, that's that sounds like Dustin Poirier to me. Can't bend it. Yeah, but he can still walk on it, so don't worry about it. Probably it's shouldn't, fine. though. Probably just sit down. Anyway, you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Sure. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Chad, do you know how many fights there were at UFC on Fox 29? Uh, approximately 721. It felt that way. 14. There were 14 fights. Now, you remember after UFC 223 when a few fights got knocked off the card and we ended up with a nine-fight card and we were talking about, hey, man, this is actually kind of refreshing. This is the way to do this. You know, it, it encourages people to be able to actually sit down and watch the whole thing in one, like, digestible period. You can actually remember everything you saw because it doesn't, you're not overwhelmed with just the, the sheer amount of fighting content. Uh, it didn't take you all goddamn day to watch one sporting event, which is how most sporting events do it. And then we turn right around, go to Glendale, Arizona with 14 fights. Chad, the fight pass prelims were six fights long. You put together the fight pass prelims and the prelim card on Fox, and you have just right there more fights than ended up being on UFC 223. Are you fucking kidding me? Does it need to be an eight-hour event to sit down and watch the UFC? All you're doing when you, you're encouraging people to skip large portions of your product, which is a habit that will be harder to break than it is to establish. You could see it just when you look at the uh, fight card like this and the prelims, and you can see a bunch of empty seats there in uh, the arena in Glendale, and then you realize, oh yeah, well it's like noon. In Arizona, and they know they've got eight more hours of this. So yeah, they're gonna pace themselves and not show up too early. Are you fucking kidding me? You can't figure this part out. You fucking kidding me? Well, it's not like anybody else has anything to do, right? We don't have lives or no. Everybody just wants to put in like an actual work shift, enjoying this paid entertainment. One of the good things about having that many fights, though, Ben, is that we got to see that new Metro PCS commercial with Dominic Cruz and Daniel Cormier. What six or seven times? The one where they're beating on the rug. Yeah, beating up the rug. Yeah, that doesn't get old. Did you check out the acting chops on Daniel Cormier, though? Are you fucking kidding me? This guy's pretty good. He, he's got potential. Far and away the best actor that we've seen thus far on a Metro PCS commercial. Well, that's is that the, the bar we're trying to clear? I'm just saying, are you fucking kidding me? Daniel Cormier got some acting chops on him. Is that your actual are you fucking kidding Go ahead and put him in a buddy comedy with almost anybody. In fact, I'll just say it. Buddy cop comedy with Steve Miocic after they get done with their fight. Would watch. Daniel Cormier. Surprising acting chops, I would say. You fucking kidding me. This is your actual fucking you are you fucking kidding me? Huh? Did I did I swerve you with the way that I led into it? Yeah. It's like you piggybacked off mine. I did. Fucking That's what me. they call synergy. I'm gonna say are you fucking kidding me to your are you fucking kidding me? Oh, I'm gonna say me. are you fucking kidding me to you saying are you fucking kidding me about my are you? Are fucking you fucking kidding me? me? No take backs. It's gonna do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, let me start this round by hitting you with some numbers about your guy, Carlos Condit. Or, as Nick Diaz likes to refer to him, Carlos Conduit. 
Carlos Joseph Condit has now lost four consecutive fights in the UFC. Last win was in May of 2015, where he had that uh, pretty awesome performance against Thiago Alves. But overall, we're looking at five of his last six. And dating back to the title challenge he had against George St. Pierre in 2012, in that period, from that 2012 period beginning with that failed title challenge to, to now, he's won just two fights. One against Martin Campman, one against Thiago Alves. Also, Carlos Condit, 33 years of age somehow, even though it feels like he's been part of our lives forever as an MMA fighter. No one, it seems, wants to see anything bad happen to Carlos Condit. I mean, you can get branded the evil cowboy merely for beating him in a competitive fight. Does that mean, like, we're going to be a little more uh, sensitive or a little quicker to pull the trigger when it comes to a guy like Carlos Condit? Because he goes out there and he loses, and it bums us all the hell out. And I think that they're, because of the way people feel about him, they're more likely to be like, I would rather see Carlos Condit retire. Also because he seems like a smart guy who has actually expressed some concern about the long-term costs of this sport. Have we reached that point where we're all thinking, you know what? Carlos Condit could really find something else to do, and uh, we could all save ourselves a little sadness. Yeah, the numbers are staggering when you read them out like that, and obviously that's a lot of pink on the old Wikipedia page down there in the MMA career section. Uh, and this one in particular was a real heartbreaker for, for Carlos Condit to lose. And, be, and, and the reason that it was a heartbreaker for him to lose it, though, was because he looked pretty good throughout this entire fight. And in fact... If you're not out here fighting three five-minute rounds, Carlos Condit may well win this fight since he had the evil cowboy Alex Oliveira uh, locked up with a rear naked choke at the end of round one where, uh, you know, the Oliveira was doing a good job defending it. But at the same time, if you let them stay in that position for an indefinite amount of time, I'm thinking Carlos Condit probably finishes that choke at some point. And then you get the, you, you know, uh, the way that the uh, the end of the fight occurred where it just seemed like he got caught in transition by a guillotine choke that uh, maybe he underestimated at the beginning, like he was doing the professional mixed martial artist thing where like you get caught in transition in a guillotine choke and it, you know, it's, it's pounded into your brain that you should relax and you're probably going to be okay. And yet uh, Alex Oliveira ends up getting the tap out. So it's like, you come away from this fight, not necessarily with the, with the view of Carlos Condit that he's washed. But at the same time, you start reading off those wins and losses, and man, I don't know what we can conclude except that uh, he's perhaps lost a step. Well, don't you think the guillotine was also a result of him kind of being woozy still from that up kick? Like, I kind of missed it live, and then when they went back and showed mm, the replay. Yeah, where and, he got kicked again in, in, like, in transition again, right? He's on top. and Right, yeah, and he gets, he gets kicked, and he kind of falls forward, and it seems like maybe uh, still uh, a little bit wobbly after that and so you know might make some poor decisions when uh your brain's a little scrambled but yeah i mean he was already in the situation where after that loss to neil magny where it seemed like even his heart wasn't totally in that one and they matched him up with matt brown for like a violence weight championship kind of fight uh where it seems like we're not planning on there being any immediate career ramifications for either guy in that one. It's just like we want to have some fun. And Carlos Condit versus Matt Brown sounds like fun, goddammit. And then Matt Brown gets off and he gets pulled off the card. We get uh, lawful good cowboy in, as a substitute. And like now it starts to feel a little bit more like a uh, referendum on his career and his, his potential going forward than just good violent fun. Is it possible that Alex Oliveira is just hard to prepare for? on a, on short notice. Like he comes in there, he's a big, uh, welterweight. He's bouncing around. Like he's got nothing to lose. Clearly he's like not intimidated by any kind of mystique of Carlos Condit. He was, he was out there to bring the fight straight to him with a pretty good game plan. Uh, you know, takedown oriented game plan. I don't know, man. Like maybe, maybe it's just the, the like Carlos Condit fan beating inside my heart, but I, I watch these losses and it's, it's like, I almost can't bring myself to say that that he seems like he's not as good as he used to be. And then, uh, but part of it is like kind of what my eyes are telling me. Like he still looked good in this fight, and I think that you know you could argue he he won that first round, and I think that you could argue he was on his way to winning the second one before he gets stunned and then and then choked out. 
Uh, You're saying he would have won if he hadn't lost? Yeah, Vitor Belfort style. Had had he not lost, he probably would have won this this particular fight. So I don't know, man. Like, uh, what would it take, I guess, Ben, for you to warm up to the idea that Carlos Condit wasn't done? Like, how many fights in a row does Carlos Condit have to win against what kind of competition to convince you, like, okay, well, he just had a run of bum luck? Well, I one of the things is that it's not the situation we're used to where – Usually what happens when we start feeling this way is that somebody keeps getting knocked out, you know, and maybe they get knocked out easier and easier. And that's not really happening to him. You know, he he got submitted here after getting rocked a little bit by that upkick. He lost the decision to Neil Magny. He got submitted by Demian Maia, which can happen to anybody. And he lost that split decision to Robbie Lawler, which could have easily gone his way. You know, and then the one before that uh, was the uh, knee injury to Tyron Woodley. You you look at kind of any one of those and you're like, well, that's just the fight game. Like neither, none of those seem like they cry out to you as signs that this guy is washed up and in danger and he needs to stop. But in a way, that's what makes me wonder is that like the most pernicious part of it? Is that what's going to keep you going indefinitely? Because they all seem like, well, that's not so bad. You know, maybe you're rusty. Maybe you just need to fire it up again. Maybe you had a, a short notice change. Uh, get back in there and keep going after a win. But it also, a part of me wonders, what are we doing at this point? Like, is Carlos Condit going to charge back and fight for a title? Probably not. Is he just out there to collect a few more paychecks? I, I mean, he, I guess it just feels different because he seems like such a smart guy that you want him to, I guess, make the Brian Stan calculation where you start to realize, okay, this is not going to be the one job I have for the rest of my life. That means there's going to have to be another kind of life that comes after this one. Maybe I should start on that life now rather than later. Yeah. Uh, and part of the equation, obviously, as we sort of hinted at throughout this round, is that Carlos Conant has walked away once already and decided to come back here for this comeback, which has obviously not gone his way during either octagon appearance. And so we could sit here and blather all day about what we think about, you know, where Carlos Conant stands and what, whether his skills are still incredibly sharp or not. But the most interesting thing here is going to be to see what Carlos Condit decides to do. Because, uh, as I think everybody knows, this is a sport that's awfully hard to be either half in or half out of. Uh, you're half in, maybe you're not performing up to your ability. Maybe you're not training as hard as you were when you were a young, hungry guy on the, on the come up. Uh, and if you're half out, still kind of hanging around the gym, you know, teaching classes, rolling around with the competition fight team members. And then we we fall back on the old uh, analogy, is it like an, an alcoholic who quits drinking uh, but still tends bar, right? Like you're still around it every day. You're still seeing it. Do you start to get that itch, as Carlos Condit has already done once, uh, to come back and try your hand again? This so, is why I just have one drink every day just to remind myself that I don't have a problem. Just, that's what I do. Yeah, well, that's it's a good strategy. Sometimes I'll have six or seven just to really make the point. Just to be like, well, I'm not sure. Actually, totally not sure. Maybe one more. Yeah. We'll hammer it home. Uh, so, yeah, man, like, I don't know. I don't know what Carlos Condit is going to do because uh, I think we just spent nine minutes laying out uh, why he is sort of a different individual in this sport, why people care about him, and a uh, guy who was already sort of quasi-retired once. Boy, I mean, I could see him maybe coming back for one more and seeing how that goes. But, uh, you know, if he if he picks up another consecutive loss, it's hard to imagine him soldiering on much, much longer, don't you think? Well, and the answer – the question that I that would need to have an answer is what are you in it for at that point? Like, you know how some guys will get into that mindset where, well, I don't want to retire on this downslope. Right. Like, I but then can't, you win one and then you're like, well, I still got it. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess, I don't know, I would hope that he knows the answer to that question, uh, even if he doesn't need to share it with us. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Then it was March 3rd when Frankie Edgar lost via knockout to Brian Ortega at UFC on, no, UFC 222, excuse me. So it'll be a little bit shy of two months when he returns to the cage this weekend at UFC Fight Night out there in New Jersey to take on Cub Swanson in a rematch. Uh, 
Fuck a medical suspension. I, I, yeah, I guess so. I was going to ask you, like, how concerned we should be for if we just spend an entire round talking about how concerned we should be for Carlos Conant, and not that I want to uh, keep the concern train rolling. Like, how concerned should we be for Frankie Edgar, or is this a situation, given that this loss to Brian Ortega was his first knockout loss of his career, uh, are, are we being a little bit too overly officious, maybe, in, in our concern for Frankie Edgar turning around to take this fight against Cub Swanson? Well, it's his first knockout loss, but it's not like it's the first time he's been clocked hard upside his head. What I would worry about more is uh, just the quick turnaround to get back in the gym to get ready for this fight. And he made some comment about how he was, he was sparring, and then when everybody was like, whoa, wait a minute, are you supposed to be sparring right after that fight? And then he was like, oh, wait, to clarify, I'm sparring, but no headshots. And it's like... Right. So what are you doing exactly? Uh, that's the, the idea that, okay, you, you want to get back in there, get a win, get that bad taste out of your mouth. Plus it's in New Jersey. You want to fight for a local crowd. I understand all that. Uh, it also though highlights again that medical suspensions in the sport are just a joke. Like the whole idea that we're going to like look at everybody after the fight and we're going to make sure for the sake of safety and just being on the safe side, we're not going to let you get back in there until we're 100% sure unless circumstances make it so that we really would like you to fight and then suddenly those medical suspensions go away. I mean, we saw that whole thing with Michael Bisping coming right back where it was like his medical suspension was retroactively changed so that it ended exactly when they needed it to. Uh, it... It just seems like, okay, we have these facades of safety, but we're not going to let them get in the way of booking a damn fight. Come on. We're not stupid. It's interesting also, though, how our perception changes and our perception specifically of Frankie Edgar in this in this case. You'll remember that it was uh, May of 2017 at UFC 211 when he pretty much beat the brakes off Yair Rodriguez. And we were like, oh, Frankie Edgar. The old man, still, you can't throw him out there against your young prospect if you want that guy to uh, to have the unblemished UFC record. You know, turns around less than a year later, gets knocked out by Brian Ortega, and suddenly we're like, oh, man, how much does Frankie Edgar have left in the tank? Yeah, that's and I'm sure that maybe some of him deciding that he could take this fight was that he's seen what Cub Swanson has and maybe feels like, all right, here's one I can win. I know because I won it already. And so maybe that motivates you to get back in there. And I can completely understand like his reason. I was surprised a little bit when he like his, some of his response to the pushback was basically like normal people don't understand this. A warrior will say yes to anything, get back in there. And it's like, man, nobody was criticizing you really. Like nobody was saying like, fuck you, Frankie Edgar for wanting to get back in there and have a fight. It was more, I think like, People love Frankie Edgar. They have a lot of affection for him. And it was just like, ooh, this seems like it could be potentially bad for your health. It was more of a concern thing than it was like people actually being critical of him. But, I, I mean, are we thinking like right here, like, hey, you go out there, you beat Cub Swanson. What have you proved if you're Frankie Edgar? Are you right back in that conversation? Uh, or does that loss to T-City establish such a clear pecking order that, you're not going to get back there without, you know, beating somebody who's super important at featherweight. Well, it's almost again like a throwback to the conversation that we just had about Carlos Conant asking, you know, what his goals are, what he wants out of his continued involvement in the sport. Uh, you know, you you could ask the same thing about Frankie Edgar, even though like he's he has still has far fewer losses clearly right in a row than Carlos Conant hasn't. Uh, experienced the same sort of uh, protracted slide as Carlos Conant. But at the same time, Frankie Edgar was a guy who for years and years would just sort of, uh, you know, was a frequent pick to, to get his, get himself into title fights, you know, kind of one right after another. It seemed like at, at both weight classes, a lightweight and featherweight. And now at this point with the loss to Brian Ortega, it did feel like there was a shift and uh, it seems like Frankie Edgar would have to put together a couple of fights at least, you know, two or three fights to get himself into a number one contender slot against somebody like Max Holloway or, you know, clearly against somebody like Brian Ortega if he should go on to win the title. So, yeah, man, that makes you, that makes you wonder, like, uh, what stage of the career of Frankie Edgar are we at? Like, what what are what does he want to do? And, uh, you know, what, what does he get out of beating Cub Swanson for a second time? And Frankie Edgar seems like, you know, it's certainly more than Carlos Condit. Frankie Edgar seems like a guy who might – uh, do this for the paycheck longer than he should. I think, yeah. we, I think we've learned that much about him over time. Or that he might do it just because 
of momentum, that this is the life you know, and that, uh, you know, who are you when you're not this anymore? I, I can see that. And just because he actually legitimately enjoys it, I'm sure, too. I think this one, though, especially, you look at this fight card, you know, the UFC, you're going into Atlantic City, your headliner is Edson Barboza versus Kevin Lee, which, again, Chad Dundas would say, this is actually the main event, as in a, in a semi-shocked voice. This one feels like the whole reason to put it on there is because you got to give people in New Jersey a little something more than that. And what can you give them? You can give them Frankie Edgar. And so it makes you kind of think, like, well, that could be, before you know it, kind of the role Frankie Edgar settles into is that, like, he's the guy who has this track record of saying yes, even sometimes in situations where it doesn't seem like there's a lot to gain, like the fight with Brian Ortega, uh, where he already has basically a title shot waiting for him, but we can't do that, fine, make him fight this guy. And then this one, you turn right around, and it seems like a similar situation. Like, there's a whole lot of reasons why you might not want to go right, uh, you know, less than two months later and fight Cub Swanson. But, hey, the UFC would like you to. It's in Atlantic City. New Jersey fans would like to get the chance to see them some Frankie Edgar. So what the hell? You go and you do it. We've seen the UFC in the past sometimes abuse a guy's good nature or or just take it for granted uh, and... I wouldn't be surprised if they start to see Frankie Edgar at this point in his career as one of those kind of people for them. Well, it also makes me wonder, in addition to that, what Cub Swanson can gain for himself in this fight. Like, he had four wins in a row leading up to his own loss to Brian Ortega last December. And clearly against Frankie Edgar, at least in the fighter mindset, he could get that loss back, right? When he lost to Frankie Edgar back in November of 2000. Uh, 14. But at the same time, I wonder like how we will receive a victory uh, from Cub Swanson if that is what transpires here. Like, let's say Cub Swanson goes out there uh, with his notable and dynamic offense and beats Frankie Edgar, let's say, by first round TKO. All of the reaction to that fight is going to be, oh, another TKO lost to for Frankie Edgar. Like, our greatest fears realized. Frankie Edgar uh, having lost a step. I, you know, very few of it, I bet, will be like, oh, amazing win for Cub Swanson, which kind of makes you wonder, uh, you know, what he does for his career if he does something uh, dynamic and impressive in this fight. I don't know. I think people will get pretty hyped about it. Like, if, especially if he goes out there and he finishes the fight, I think that people would get excited about that, especially because he, you look at him and, like, he had that four-fight streak, but it was against, uh, like, a, a different level of opponent. I mean, he had that great fight with Du Ho Choi, uh, he beat Artem Lobov, where, you know, everybody's always given Artem Lobov shit anyway. Uh, then he lost to Brian Ortega. You beat Frankie Edgar, that's like his most notable win uh, in what, like, you know, four or five years? Yeah, that's but... That's significant. At the same time, though, isn't Cub Swanson sort of in a Frankie Edgar-style situation here at Featherweight, where even though he's still ranked really high, uh, it kind of feels like we got a new thing going on? in the 145-pound title picture where we're going to have Max Holloway fight Brian Ortega, and we start hunting around in our minds for probable future title challengers. I don't know if Cub Swanson uh, has immediate top-of-mind awareness in terms of, like, he's going to be the next guy to fight for the title. Yeah, maybe not. I think the maybe where the UFC sees him as is you look at his streak of fight-of-the-night bonuses. It seems like that's what they're thinking when you put Cub Swanson on a card, and I'm sure that's what a lot of fans are thinking is, like, hey, Cub Swanson's on this thing? He doesn't disappoint you. He'll he'll give you a show one way or another, uh, and for the most part, that's true, you know. But I I don't know. It, it does seem like hey, we needed something to throw in this card, but not something that you know, not some of the premium content, like not some of the stuff that people were actually like really excited to pay for. Uh, and this fight feels like it fits that bill kind of perfectly. All right, well, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week, Ben. We were uh, talking about this before we went on the air, but I know you are starting to feel a slight tingle in the extremities, a slight tingle of excitement building up now that we are two weeks away from Bellator 198, Fedor versus Mir, which goes down April 28. I know that you are starting to... Is hmm, that what that tingle was? It's starting to keep you up a little bit at night. I thought it was nerve damage. Wake you up in the morning, kind of, ooh, what's this disturbance in the force? Oh, Fedor versus Mir, that's what it is. This week, I'm just saying, as we commented before we started recording the show, woo, they better hope to God this fight comes off, right? Because you look at this Bellator 198 card, and backing up Emilianenko versus Frank Mir, you got Emmanuel Sanchez versus Sam Cecilia. 
Rafael Lovato Jr. versus John Salter, Neiman Gracie versus Javier Torres. Shut up, that's not a real Gracie. And Dylan Dennis versus Kyle Walker. So you better hope that the two 40-year-old men make it to the cage. Otherwise, I honestly don't know what you're doing here with Bellator 198. I'm just saying. Just saying. But what could go wrong? No. Nothing could go wrong with a couple 40-year-old heavyweights. Nope. They've been training hard this whole time. Yep. Probably ready to go. Tip-top shape. Best shape of their lives. Everything's going to be fine. Well, Chad, this week I'm just saying, did you see this announcement from the Professional Fighters League, formerly the WSOF, now it's rebranded as the PFL, announcing their 2018 schedule uh, where you know going to have all these tournaments and all these different weight classes, and a uh, winner gets a million bucks. Making millionaires. $10 million prize pool, they say for this one. Um, I'm just saying, do you want to guess how many fighters in this, you know, the entire tournament have Magomed somewhere in their name? Spread across all weight classes? That's right. You'll, re- you'll recall Jimmy Smith's comment about like how he had, a th- he had developed a theory that the more Magomeds you have in your name, the more of a badass fighter you are. <laughs> and that somewhere out there, there's a guy called Magomed, 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 who's going to come in and destroy everybody. This one gives us a chance to test that theory. Take a guess. How many Magomeds? Uh, First or last name, either one. Four. Six. There are six. There's one in every weight class, you're telling me. Uh, no. They they don't make it. There's not that many Magomeds in the heavier weight classes. Okay, so by the featherweight, it's all Magomeds. Featherweight has both Bekbulat Magomedov and Magomed Idrisov. Nailed it. Lightweight has Rashid Magomedov. Welterweight has uh, Hubakar uh, Nurmagomedov. And then this guy who's got to be the, the favorite to win it all, Magomed Magomed Karamov. Oh, that's a lot of Magomeds right there. In that and name. then at middleweight, I believe the, the heaviest Magomed available, Abbas Magomedov? Hmm. I'm just saying. You're just saying. It's a lot of Magomeds. It sure is. Are any of those Habib Nurmagomedov clones? I believe uh, Abu Bakar Nur- Nurmagomedov is like a cousin or something, right? I mean. Just go to uh, Khabib's Instagram. Look at one of those pictures where it's like, 40 dudes all crammed into a room where they're, you can't tell, like, is there, like, a big party? Did they just get together to have dinner? Um, half of them seem to be wearing identical track suits. And it's a, it's a good bet he's one of those guys. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting Magomed Magomedov, right? Sure. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down uh, the stuff that happens at this UFC fight night from New Jersey and then... Glory be, will we look ahead to Bellator 198 with Fedor versus Mir? I guess if it's still intact, we will. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Are you trying to do the thing where you keep talking about, like, Fedor versus Mir, like it won't happen in the hopes that that will kind of throw the MMA gods off the scent? Like I'm bringing down my own expectations, yeah. sort of? Like I'll just be happy if it really goes off? Yeah, like you can't break my heart because I'm not even expecting anything. Maybe so. I know there won't be any presents under the tree. So there. Maybe...